BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Welcome to The Megyn Kelly Show, your home for open, honest, and provocative conversations. Megan Kelly, welcome to the Megan Kelly Show and happy Friday. Today, we bring you world renowned historian Neil Ferguson. I have been so looking forward to talking to Neil. We have had many friends of Neil's on this show. Douglas Murray, Andrew Sullivan is not only his friend, but godfather to, a, to one of his sons. Uh, and his wife is a superstar and one of my idols, Ayan Hersey Ali, the one and only. Now we finally get to talk with Neil himself for the full show. But one thing about Neil is his name is spelled in a way that really makes you want to call him Niall. <laughs> He's Scottish. Anyway, it's Neil. He's the Milbank Family Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University and author of many best-selling books, including 2021's Doom, The Politics of Catastrophe. He has fascinating thoughts on wokeism, religion, Trump, American foreign policy, and much, much more. Neil, great to have you here. Megan, it's a great pleasure. Yes. So I'm going to it'll be easier for me to call you Neil since I'm looking at you. But whenever I read your stuff, I'm like, Niall, why is that the Scottish way of spelling Neil? Well, it's it's Gaelic. You encounter it in Ireland, too. And, and there are versions of the name even in, in Iceland. But the funny thing is that the Irish mispronounced the name Niall. And that's wrong in, in the same way that it would be wrong to call me Ian if my name was Ian. But can you imagine how annoying this is? Imagine if everybody kept calling you Megine. I mean, I've never <laughs> called you that, but imagine if, if somebody were to do that, you'd, you'd be kind of annoyed. So yes. all my life, I've had to correct people. I'm sure it was character building. Right. You never considered just converting to a, a more Americanized spelling once you moved here? No, I think it's important to stick to your guns, uh, Megan. I, I, I named one of my uh, children, in fact, uh, Andrew Sullivan's godson, Lachlan, so that he would have to go through life correcting people. And I think <laughs> it's already showing signs of having made him as, uh, as obstinate as his father. <laughs> With my name, it's usually they think it's Megan or they don't know if it's Megan or Megan. I don't really know the answer either. I, I always try to fudge the pronunciation of my own name because I don't I don't know how to say it. It's it's confusing. <laughs> I've never heard it pronounced any other way. But but Megan, but that's because you're famous. Yeah, well, not exactly. But my mom gave me a little weird spelling of my own, which has confused people. It's Her true that there explanation are multiple was ways. These are all these are both Celtic names. There are multiple ways of spelling them because and I try to remind people of this in the past. Nobody knew how to spell. So if your name was Neil. 
your your parents were taking a guess when they filled in the birth certificate. So yeah, yeah. I mean, we should be thankful that it's not more complex. My father yeah. at one point wanted to call me Icarus. Can you imagine oh, how my life would have been different with that name? <laughs> he had a healthy sense of humor. Um, and then you married the beautiful Ayan, which is really, I mean, not to define you by your wife, but you know my admiration for your wonderful spouse. And that's also difficult to pronounce. Ayan Hersi Ali, people are probably like, what's going on? This is a really difficult family. Well, I certainly heard people mangle uh, Ayan's name. That's never struck me as particularly difficult to pronounce. I don't mind being defined as uh, husband of the more famous Ayan. That's just fine by me. It was Dennis Thatcher's view that Margaret Thatcher was more significant than he was, and he never complained. I feel the same way. Uh, we'll get to her in just a bit because we definitely have to spend some time on on her and your union and what it's like being married to Ayan. But we have to start with this because there is news this morning. Joe Biden is running. ABC and others now reporting that not only is he definitely running, but he will announce next week. They believe the announcement will come on Tuesday. And um, to this, you say what? I know you're not a fan. You've been openly critical. Uh, what do you make of the fact that the 80-year-old Joe Biden will run for president for a second term? Well, I think I understand the game plan uh, that the Democrats have, which is essentially the game plan that they had in 2020. He's the candidate they can come up with who can beat Donald Trump. And so they have decided to uh, uh, replay uh, that particular script. And I think it's very, very risky for them. Uh, and I'll tell you why. Uh, first of all, uh, a significant proportion of voters are already aware that President Biden is, shall we say, on the old side for the world's most stressful job. Uh, secondly, and more importantly, between now and that day in November of 2024, when the uh, votes get cast, or at least most of them get cast, there's very likely to be a recession. Uh, the probability of, of a recession starting sometime this year is certainly north of 50%. Larry Summers told me the other day, 80%. Mm. So between now and the election, there's going to be a recession. And it must be said that presidents who go uh, uh, for re-election with a recession uh, in the pipeline don't have a great track record. So my sense is that they think they know what they're doing, but they're underestimating uh, the downside risk. Because my own view is that at this point, Donald Trump is uh, the favorite to win the Republican nomination. And whoever is the Republican candidate is quite likely to win next year if there's a recession. Yeah, if there's a recession. The thing about Trump is as many as much baggage as he has, that economy under Trump pre-COVID is unforgettable. I mean, I, and right. he'll be there to remind people of it. In case you know, is. Megan, I think people have uh, not fully grasped uh, the, the consequences of such significant interest rate hikes by the Fed in response to the huge inflation mistake that the Biden administration made in 2021 have yet to feed fully through, particularly the labor market, which is still still pretty hot. But there's a kind of chain reaction that happens when the central bank tightens interest rates, uh, and it takes a little while to to hit the ordinary uh, household, but I think uh, hit it, uh, it will. And and when that happens, people are going to start looking back uh, on uh, the Trump economy. Uh, they're no longer going to have such uh, 
a sense that he mishandled the pandemic because after all, more people died in 2021 of COVID than in 2020. And I think if President Trump uh, plays his cards right and emphasizes that they had full employment under Donald Trump, but pretty much no inflation problem, a lot of people who turned away from him in 2020 are going to be tempted to turn back because the combination of much higher inflation, which we've had, followed by a recession, is a combination that loses you elections historically. So I think this is the way I'm seeing it right now. A lot can happen, of course. We're a long way off uh, from the election. Uh, but the assumption that they've got a winning formula that, that will beat Donald Trump under any circumstances, I don't think that's the correct lesson of 2020. 2020 was a very exceptional year to hold an election. Donald Trump had mishandled the way uh, he he dealt with the, the pandemic. He was in a weak position uh, that he wouldn't have been in. Without the pandemic, I think he'd have been reelected. Uh, and now we're all pretty much over the pandemic, apart from a few people still clinging to their masks here in Northern California. And that means that the circumstances in 2024 will be radically different. You seem to be pro-Trump in a lot of your writings. Ayan seems to be more pro-DeSantis. She wrote a column not long ago saying we got to move past Trump. Is that still where you are? You know, I was never unconditionally pro-Trump, Megan. I, I was ambivalent from the outset. And when I look back on the things that I wrote in, in 2020, uh, I was, uh, and indeed in, in 2016, I was ambivalent uh, from the get-go. And, and I think there are many things about Governor DeSantis that are appealing uh, for those of us who found the Trump years exhausting uh, because of his uh chaotic approach uh, to government. It would be lovely to have those elements of, of Trumpism, the policy elements that worked well, particularly for the economy, but also I would say for foreign policy, but without the chaos, without the sense that every day your hair was in fire from the minute the alarm clock went off. And I think that that's the dream that DeSantis uh, is supposed to represent. But at this point, I don't think he's succeeding in conveying that he's Trump with competence. And that is why at this point, the polling is showing uh, Trump establishing a dominating lead. So I'm I'm, an, I'm still ambivalent. I slightly kind of shudder at the thought of a, of a second Trump term. But I think at the moment, I shudder more at the thought of another Biden term, because I do think that if one strips away all the fairly positive media coverage that this administration gets, it's done shockingly on both the economy, where we've had this inflation mistake, uh, I think mistakes understating it, and, and foreign policy, where I think things have really been pretty disastrous. Uh, if you asked me, uh, would I, I prefer DeSantis over Trump? Uh, then I, I think probably I, I would in common with a lot of uh, conservative uh, elites. But that is not the way where the primary voters are right now. As far mm. as the polling shows, primary voters are leaning ever further in the direction of, of renominating Donald Trump. And in the end, it's not it's not up to people like me, is it? The thing about DeSantis, and I realize he hasn't actually declared yet, but he's, you know, he basically came out this week that the Florida delegation, the congressional delega delegation is mostly backing Trump, not DeSantis. And DeSantis didn't have the foresight to make sure that was lined up. You know, he should, he should at least have those guys. And it dovetails with something uh, I heard my friends on National Review talking about it this week, and I've heard others talk about it, about whether DeSantis can connect with people in a way that one must in order to advance in presidential politics. And I think yeah. some some friends of mine were at one of these dinners with him. You know, he's not dumb. He's been having 
these muckety muck dinners with very wealthy donors. And they were at one of them and their comment on DeSantis, who they really liked. I mean, they, they like him on paper was that the entire dinner, he did not ask one question of anyone there. It was all about himself. He was happy to talk about himself, but he showed zero interest in the people around the table, which is a cardinal sin in how to run a dinner party, how to be at a dinner party, never mind how to run for president. Trump is probably the opposite, right? Even as a reporter, Trump would call me all the time. He'd send me notes all the time, newspaper articles about him. (laughs) And he wanted to make sure I saw Um, this. I actually think it could matter. I know it sounds like small ball, but I actually think that that difference in dynamic is probably important. Well, Megan, I'm I'm a historian, not not a political pundit, but uh, I I have observed the same thing, which is that uh, I I've seen uh, Governor DeSantis give a terrific stump speech. He's really good at that, and he knows how to hit those uh, talking points. But then sit down at the dinner table in a in a ballroom and not connect with the people at that table. And you know, American primaries, especially in the small states that matter early on, you know, New Hampshire, Iowa, th- those are those are places where you need to press the flesh and connect with uh, ordinary folks. Another Ron, I'm thinking of Ronald Reagan here, uh, of course, won uh, in uh, 1980 in the wake of a pretty dismal uh, Carter presidency. I've often compared the the Biden administration to the Carter administration. Uh, and I kind of thought for a while that it would end the same way with uh, a governor named Ron uh, handily winning. But but Ronald Reagan had those uh, interpersonal skills. Uh, he could fake interest uh, in the people around him. I mean, typically you have to fake it because uh, yeah. if you're president, you meet a lot of people. Uh, but Ronald Reagan was an actor, so he could convey interest uh, in the people around him. And this is the thing that the governor DeSantis does not seem at all good at. And I have to say that that for me gives him a glass jaw in boxing terms. And that's why I've I've come to be somewhat skeptical that he can that he can do this. Unless there can be a reconfiguration of his whole personal style. And as well, as well, I think, as the campaign strategy, this thing is going to be like Elon Musk's rocket. <laughs> yesterday's rocket, right, which did not go so well, though. It was weird how the internet instantly divided on that. People were like, that's it. It blew up and we're calling it a success. And then other people were like, he tried. He's innovative. The whole point was to learn. I'm like, I, I don't know what to think or say other than it didn't go up very high. <laughs> the thing I've learned from studying uh, exploding rockets, this goes back to the Space Shuttle Challenger, is that it makes a huge difference if it's manned versus unmanned. And I think we'd yeah. be dealing with a completely different story here if that had been a manned uh, rocket. Uh, when, when you think back to the the, the Challenger disaster, that, that dominated the news cycle uh, uh, in the United States and indeed the world because there yeah. were people on board. Uh, so I think was... he can get away with an experiment failing like this for that reason and that reason alone. It does make give you some perspective, though, on why he doesn't get too heated about his employee complaints over at Twitter. It's like, I, OK, I'm launching rockets. I, I have an electric car company. Yeah. Just take a seat. You're, you're the least of my worries. I couldn't really care less about your your woke objections at Twitter. And that's exactly I, who we need running Twitter. I, I call him Napoleon. He's the ne- Napoleonic figure of our times. Uh, he bestrides the spirit of the age uh, metaphorically, as Napoleon did in, in his day. And it, it means that 
you can't expect uh, the kind of normal yardsticks to apply this uh, heroic quality uh, to Elon. There's a crazy quality uh, to him. He can be completely uh, infantile in his in his humor, but at the same time be managing uh, these extraordinary feats of of engineering ambition. And and that's that is what makes him such a unique personality. As as an historian, I wonder how this. Story will end. Is it going to end with the triumph of Elon City on Mars in future generations, uh, or is is it going to end with uh, all the shorts on Tesla finally being being vindicated as uh, the Chinese eat Tesla's lunch? I I don't know, but I can't help but admire his uh, his courage. He is uh, fearless uh, when it comes to business risk. Uh, he he is a visionary, and you know those of us who felt that Twitter had become uh, under previous uh, management, the exemplar of the surveillance censorship network platform, we cheered uh, when Elon took over. Though I must say, uh, I warned him against doing it. I said, "You really, you really shouldn't do this. It's this is a worse idea than if you were buying a, an Italian soccer team uh, or one of those other ways of losing money that that are out there." But uh, as usual, he did not take my advice. Well, the nation is grateful he did not. At least those of us who are in the center or on the right are grateful because I think Twitter is a much more delightful place with him in charge. And you can say what's real. You know, lately I've been on a tear about biological sex being real and keeping men out of women's spaces. And right. half the stuff I tweet, you couldn't have tweeted two years ago, pre-Elon. So I'm very grateful. I, I agree, Megan. And I must say, as a Twitter user, I haven't noticed some great deterioration. I, I don't join in these uh, endless hissy fits about they took my blue tick mark away. All that stuff strikes me as as nonsense. And uh, and at this point, the really important thing is that systematic censorship that was going on is no longer happening. I think it'll take a long time to figure out how to make this thing work in the in the way that I think Elon imagines, where you have uh, real free speech without the thing becoming a kind of hellscape of bots uh, and and fake uh, identities. But uh, but I think it's moving in a better direction than it was before, because if you think back to 2020, the really shocking thing was the extent to which the network platforms worked against Donald Trump, worked against conservatives, worked against people who were dissidents on the issue of the pandemic, uh, like my colleague here, Jay Bhattacharya. I mean, it really was quite shocking to see a bunch of private companies working some in some measure with uh, political operatives create their own version of the Chinese surveillance state. So anything that breaks that trend up has to be good. Yes. I thought the same thing. I was like, so for a hundred bucks a year, I'm going to support Elon's new Twitter. Oh, that's fine. That's a no brainer. I, I give that to half the people I subscribe to on Substack just because I want to support their effort. It's not what it actually costs. I just pay more because I want to support the platform or the journalist. Thankfully, I'm in a position to do that. So uh, for me, it was like a no brainer. People are absolutely melting down over the stupid $8 a month. Like, yeah. Okay. Get over it. Yeah, um, yeah, that is can, that is we, again. That's one of these many non-issues that one really should try not to waste time on. When we consider all the subscriptions that our lives currently require us to pay, I hate to think how many I'm mindlessly paying without even making much use of them. Uh, the the Twitter issue is a non-issue. I want to spend some time, just a minute, on foreign policy and DeSantis and Trump, if you don't mind, because I know you've written a lot about uh, foreign policy in China and the Cold War. 
that we may be in. And DeSantis, this is one Achilles heel for him, potentially. You know, he's a governor. He Yes, he did some spend some time in the House. So he's got some exposure to thinking about foreign policy. But it's not really your thing. It's really a presidential thing. And it's not something a governor does. And his first step out of the block on that wasn't great. He called Ukraine a territorial dispute in response to a request from Tucker for a statement on where he stood. And of course, that's kind of Tucker's position. So he kind of gave Tucker, I think, what he thought would go over well with Tucker, because most of these GOPers are afraid of Tucker because he has a lot of power on his platform. And um, then he got hit by the more establishment GOPers who do not see it that way, who see it more as an existential potential crisis. And that if we don't if, if we let Russia win this, we, the United States, will be weakened uh, and that it has direct uh, effects and implications on U.S. foreign policy. So then he tried to back off of it. He flailed a bit. Trump's more hardcore territorial. You know, he's he's a non-interventionalist. He's the opposite of a neocon. So how do you assess those two gentlemen when it comes to foreign policy? I don't know where DeSantis will land. You know, if he were to actually win and be in the governing position, I don't I'm not sure. He hasn't given us enough info. But how do you see it right now? Well, as a general principle, anybody who's a governor hoping uh, to run for president has to stake out some national security territory and uh, and has to have credibility on on the on the great global issues of the day. And that was what Ronald Reagan did so successfully uh, in the course of the 1970s. A great part of Reagan's rise to national uh, fame was based uh, on his readiness to critique detente. Uh, and in many ways, he was the harshest critic of Henry Kissinger at that time. Uh, Ron DeSantis hasn't really done that. Uh, he had opportunities, uh, but until uh, Tucker Carlson asked him the question and many others the question about Ukraine, he'd, he'd said relatively little. Now, to be fair to Governor DeSantis, he uh, the reply, which I read carefully, was not a bad one. The, the, in, it looked to me like somebody had inserted that ter- that word territorial. Uh, uh, on the basis, perhaps, of focus groups. And if you take it out, uh, this, the, the reply is actually not bad. But that was a, an error of judgment because it made it sound uh, as if Governor DeSantis was really, well, trivializing the nature of uh, the conflict and particularly misrepresenting Vladimir Putin's objectives, which are, are clearly stated, namely to eradicate Ukraine as a nation and the Ukrainian people as a people. So that's not territorial. Hmm. Uh, so I think that was a that was a mistake. The problem that Ron DeSantis has is that Donald Trump has a much more straightforward story to tell voters about his foreign policy, which is based on a track record. Donald Trump can credibly say that there were no wars started on his watch. He can credibly say uh, that he made both Russia and China much more nervous uh, than Joe Biden did. I. I remember, and you may also remember it, uh, Megan, Trump on on a phone call to some golfer claiming uh, last year that if he'd still been president, Putin wouldn't have invaded uh, Ukraine. And for that matter, Xi Jinping wouldn't be threatening Taiwan. And uh, he he made the, the following argument that when he'd been president, he'd said to Putin, don't invade Ukraine or I'll bomb Moscow and all those lovely golden domes will be gone. Now, when I first heard that, I thought, that can't be right. He's making it up. But I asked people who'd been in Donald Trump's administration, is it plausible he did say that? And they said, 
Neil, he said that stuff all the time. So one of the things that's really interesting about Trump is that he seems to illustrate Richard Nixon's madman theory, which was that if the other guys think you're a bit crazy, they'll be deterred. They won't take risk just in case you do something crazy. This was, of course, the opposite. Uh, of Joe Biden's approach was just to say, I'm I'm really, I may be a little old, but oh gosh, I'm really sane. And the, the most you have to fear for me is sanctions. That was what the Biden administration said to Putin in 2021. And Putin said, well, I'm not afraid of your sanctions. I'm going to invade. I think Trump can credibly argue that Putin would have been much less ready to take that risk if Trump had still been in the White House. So this is the key. I think Donald Trump has a pretty good foreign policy record to run on. And if he runs on that, I don't I don't see how Ron DeSantis can land a punch. And if he's up against Biden on that, now it's a real ball game because you've got, you know, this has not been Biden's forte at all. And I realize that he just released this report claiming Afghanistan was all Trump's fault. Trump made the commitment to get us out of there. And Trump, he actually said in this report, Trump left no game plan for us to leave. So you just decided to march blindly into doing it, into withdrawing all the troops without getting a game plan. We're supposed to blame that on Trump. That's really actually what happened. Um, So those two battling it out on foreign policy, Trump and Biden, could be very interesting to watch. Right. And I think it's clear that although Trump wanted to get out of Afghanistan, uh, he would not have done it in the way that that the Biden administration did, which was extraordinarily inept. I mean, withdrawing the special forces people first, uh, not really telling your allies what you're doing. Uh, it was tremendously badly executed. And, you know, if you if you can talk in private to people in the administration, they'll admit uh, they screwed it up. And that, that by doing so, they then created a credibility problem for themselves with just about everything else. But, you know, Megan, that's not the biggest mistake uh, of Joe Biden's presidency so far. I, I don't think it's well enough understood how badly they handled Russia's threats to Ukraine uh, the year before the war, because I think there were ways of deterring Putin uh, if you'd stepped up the arms deliveries to Ukraine. In fact, they did the opposite. They reduced them. Uh, they took the sanctions off the Nord Stream 2 uh, pipeline. And they explicitly said that the only thing that, that Putin would really have to fear would be more sanctions. Now, sanctions in all the history of sanctions have never deterred anybody from doing anything. They punish people for doing things, but as a deterrent, they don't work. So I think if one asks again the question, how would this have gone? if Trump had been re-elected. It would not have gone the same way. I think there were ways of deterring Putin. We, we, we can see clearly uh, that the Russian uh, army was not ready uh, for an operation where they faced serious resistance uh, from Ukrainians. And so they could have been deterred if it had only been made explicit that in the event of Russian aggression, uh, there would be full-scale military assistance to Ukraine. We never said that. The, the United States under Joe Biden said, we'll do sanctions. Uh, at one point, the president even talked about an incursion into Ukraine as if you could minor. do kind of a little bit more invading and it yeah, would Yeah, if it's just matter. a minor incursion, that's one thing he said. This was just such terrible communication. And say what you like about uh, Donald Trump. One of the things that did impress me when he was president was his ability to intimidate foreign leaders, uh, whether it was with uh, a talk of fire and fury that was, of course, directed at the North Koreans or in the way that he played Xi Jinping. I, I spent quite a bit of time in, in China in the period before the pandemic, uh, was a visiting professor in 
uh, Tsinghua in Beijing, it never ceased to amaze me how Donald Trump could wrong foot the Chinese leadership. They did not know what to make of him. They went from thinking it was a good thing that he'd won to thinking that it was a terrible thing that he'd won to going back to thinking that it was a good thing. I mean, they really didn't know what to make of him. And if you if you think about US-China policy, Megan, one of the funny things to, to reflect on is that if he'd won uh, in 2020, Donald Trump would probably have done a trade deal with China the following year. Donald mm. Trump don't, don't, doesn't care about Taiwan. He made that explicit to John Bolton. You can read it in John Bolton's memoir. We wouldn't be having showdowns over Taiwan if Trump were president because that was never his focus. So I think that the question that more and more Americans will be asking themselves in the coming months is, you know, was Trump really as bad as they kept telling us? Uh, turns out the collusion with Russia was not, in fact, true. Uh, it turns out that there's a kind of sustained campaign against him now through the law courts. I mean, people are going to start asking themselves, was he really as bad as he was painted by liberal media at the time? In terms of outcomes, and this was something I said again and again during Trump's presidency, if you just judged him by the outcomes of policy, not by the tweets, not by the constant news cycle, but just by the outcomes of policy, the Trump administration was really quite a successful administration. And that is the thing that I think more and more voters are going to be remembering. Right. And some and the the perception of Trump as erratic, which, of course, was in, at least in part real could have been a boon to us, especially, as you point out, when it comes to the perceptions of foreign leaders who didn't know what they were going to get if they made a false move that involved U.S. interests. On the subject of Taiwan, I'm interested in following up on that because I know you believe, as many do, that's coming. That problem is coming at us within the next couple of years. And we need to care somewhat because they make all the semiconductors, which we need. And we're trying to catch up, but there's zero chance we're going to catch up anytime soon in making them domestically. So how 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 would that play out if you had a President Trump who didn't want to get to get involved in Taiwan or if you had a President Biden that did? You know, what how is that going to look for the United States over the next couple of years when it comes to our dependence on Taiwan uh, for those semiconductors and on China for trade and a lot of other things? Well, this is a hugely important issue, Megan. In Cold War One, we nearly blew the world up over an island, uh, Cuba in 1962. And, and I don't want us to rerun that particular experiment with another island, Taiwan, in Cold War II, uh, particularly as, uh, in many ways, uh, the, the, the case is more difficult for the United States. Cuba's really close to the United States. Taiwan's really close to China. Uh, and so getting into a fight over uh, Taiwan doesn't strike me as something particularly advantageous for the United States. In fact, one of the things I keep telling congressional leaders is, why are you talking so tough on this issue? Any war over Taiwan be, would be extraordinarily difficult for the United States because of improvements in China's military capability. They now have missiles that can sink our aircraft carriers, which they sure didn't in the 1990s. And it just would be hard for us to sustain uh, any protracted conventional war. Look at how quickly our stocks of missiles have been depleted by the war in Ukraine. Uh, so I don't know why we talk so tough on this issue when there's such risk uh, implicit in it. Now, Taiwan matters economically way more than Cuba did. I mean, Cuba's economy was a nothing, uh, rounding error. Taiwan is the most important uh, center for the production of sophisticated semiconductors 
in the world because of TSMC, the great semiconductor manufacturer founded by Morris Chang in Taiwan. And so it's really important uh, for the world economy that it not become Ukraine 2.0, another battlefield where uh, TSMC would presumably be reduced uh, quite swiftly to rubble, possibly by us to make sure the Chinese didn't get a hold of it. So the stakes are extraordinarily high. Now, there is in fact a quite simple way to avoid a conflict over Taiwan, and that is just to stick to the strategic ambiguity that we have had on this issue since the 1970s. Since the 1970s, going right back to Henry Kissinger and Richard Nixon, we basically accepted the Chinese claim that Taiwan is part of China. We, we don't treat Taiwan as an independent country. We just kind of go along with this claim that there's one China. In practice, Taiwan's an independent country. In practice, it's democ a democracy. Uh, but we kind of just accept the fiction that it's not. Uh, and we don't have an unambiguous commitment uh, to defend it in the event uh, of a Chinese invasion. We just say that if the Chinese try to change the status quo by force, then we reserve the right to take some unspecified action. That's the strategic ambiguity we've had really since the late 1970s. What has been very strange to me is that over the last three years, Democrats and various foreign policy think tank types like Richard Haas have started to question strategic ambiguity. And they've started to say, we should be unambiguous in our commitment uh, to Taiwan, and we should carry on like it is an independent country. I think that was the spirit of Nancy Pelosi's visit. The, the president himself, Joe Biden, has said on more than one occasion that there's an unambiguous commitment. Now, the simple solution to avoiding the Cuban Missile Crisis happening over Taiwan is just to go back to strategic ambiguity. And I think many Taiwanese people would welcome that. They're pretty nervous that mm. we're making these hawkish noises because they're the ones who would have to deal with the sharp end of a war. So I don't think it's too hard to turn this down. You just have to revert to the status quo and stop talking like a war over Taiwan is somehow inevitable, which seems to be the way that some of the more reckless people in Washington are talking today. Is there a lesson that the Biden administration may have learned from the soft talk on Russia and Ukraine here? Do you think they, they thought that lesson could then be applied to a totally different country and different set of circumstances and upped the rhetoric over Taiwan because of the failure you just outlined earlier on Ukraine? Well, I do think that some people in the administration regard these things as very much interconnected, that they are, in a sense, backing Ukraine in this war against Russia and backing it with considerable firepower and, and finance, partly in order to make a point to China, not, not just to erode Russia's fighting capability, but to signal to Xi Jinping, hey, don't mess with uh, friends of the West. The, the problem with that theory, which sounds superficially quite cynical, maybe clever, Machiavellian, is that I think China at this point is the net winner of the war in Ukraine. I mean, it's reduced Russia mm. to subservience on China uh, economically, gives China an option to pose as even a, a peacemaker while at the same time giving uh, the Russians economic support. Meanwhile, the Chinese can sit back and watch America run down its stockpiles of missiles and other weapons uh, on a war over Ukraine, which China doesn't really care about that much. And so I'm, I don't think that the administration is nearly as clever as it thinks it is about this. But the thing about deterrence is, Megan, in the end, it's not just about words. Talking tough 
is not going to deter anybody if you don't have the means to back up your tough talk. It's that whole thing about speaking softly and carrying a big stick, uh, Teddy Roosevelt's famous line. We currently are in the in danger over Taiwan uh, of speaking loudly and not having much of a stick at all. Uh, and I think that's very, very dangerous. Historically, the most dangerous thing to do is to talk tough, say that you'll fight uh, over a territory. If you don't have the military wherewithal uh, to back up the talk, and I don't think we currently deter China in military terms from at least imposing a blockade on Taiwan. I, I'm not sure the Chinese would risk an amphibious invasion of Taiwan. That would be very difficult for the People's Liberation Army to pull off because that's kind of the hardest thing in war. But I can easily imagine them putting a blockade around Taiwan and saying to the United States, what are you going to do about it? And that would pose a really major challenge to any US administration, because if you run that blockade, if you send aircraft carriers and submarines to try and run that blockade, you are doing what the Soviets did in 1962. In other words, we'd be rerunning the Cuban Missile Crisis, only we'd be the Soviets. Because remember, mm -hmm. it was John F. Kennedy who quarantined, he called it a quarantine, but it was a blockade around Cuba, and defied the Russians to run that blockade. I do not think it's a smart thing to get yourself into the position of Nikita Khrushchev in 1962, because as you know, in the end, Megan, he backed down. Mm -hmm. and, and I think a scenario like the one I'm describing over Taiwan might very well lead uh, the US to back down, because the alternative would be a really huge war with China that nobody would know uh, uh, how to stop and how to prevent yeah. escalating. And, and the American people are not ready to see our aircraft carriers uh, go down under Chinese uh, fire in, in the sea over there. So and there's just no appetite for that after 20 years of, you know, the right. forever wars here. You right. mentioned Henry Kissinger in passing. Uh, later, we'll get to the story. I think it was our pal Douglas Murray writing up about your wedding to Ayan and how he thought he was in the receiving line to go see you and your beautiful bride and wound up realizing that the very long line he was in with people queuing up to see Kissinger <laughs> was there, <laughs> which is very fun. Um, so many great connections and for a good reason, because both you and Ayan are fascinating people. We're going to have more with Neil coming up next. Don't you want to hear his thoughts on everything? He can explain everything in such an easy to understand way. And he knows of what he speaks. More with Neil after this. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is now over. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Oh, joy. Don't waive your rights and speak with them on your own. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their clients, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you, whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. Call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit TNUSA.com slash Megan. Neil, I've got to ask you about this in the news today. Um, speaking of President Biden. He has got this new rule he is proposing now that is going to penalize homeowners who have good credit rates. He wants them to pay more on their mortgages 
than those who have bad credit. And even uh, former President Obama's uh, a senior housing official in the Obama administration has come out to say this is not the way his name is David Stevens saying this this is going to penalize financially stable home buyers uh, to subsidize those of higher risk. And here's from The Daily Wire. This is how they describe it. Americans purchasing a new home or refinancing their existing mortgage can expect to pay higher mortgage rates and monthly fees starting in May if they have a higher, meaning better, credit score. Those with lower credit scores and smaller down payments will be provided better rates. Home buyers with credit scores above 680, for instance, would pay an additional $40 each month on a home loan of 400,000. Home buyers who make down payments between 15 and 20% will receive the largest fees. They will be assessing you more if you pay 20%, which is a good number to put down. Uh, and this guy, Stevens, who worked for Obama, said this is unprecedented. We can do better programs to help more minorities get into homeownership. This is not the way to do it. This what mentality is this reflecting that we're now going to punish people who paid their bills on time so their credit rates are higher? Megan, I haven't seen this proposal, and so I'll I'll watch what I say. Uh, but but my, by the way, Neil, sense... that's because no one's covering it. Literally, that's because the mainstream media will not touch this. Uh, uh, it's it's certainly, as you describe it, an, an extraordinary uh, and terrible idea. Uh, I can't believe uh, an idea like that will get past first base. I can almost see Secretary Yellen at the Treasury uh, falling from her uh, desk chair. Uh, so I'm assuming this is not intended to become real uh, policy, uh, but I think it's designed, uh, as so often with the administration, as a little bit of virtue signaling. Uh, you did use the word minority there, and I, I infer that part of the goal here is uh, to address uh, perceived uh, iniquities in the housing market. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm assuming it's virtue signaling uh, with with that in mind. Uh, but I, I mean, I find it depressing that an idea like that would even uh, be aired, uh, even as a, a trial balloon. But it, it's part of a a long list of of terrible policy ideas that periodically surface. You'll remember when inflation was first really uh, surprising uh, to the upside, we were told that, in fact, inflation was uh, caused by profiteering businesses, an, an idea that I thought had surely been killed off long ago by Milton Friedman and uh, his generation of economists. So bad ideas are back in fashion, uh, on particularly on these economic questions. And you can only console yourself that they're unlikely to be put into practice and reflect that what they're really about is, is, is essentially political signaling uh, of a sort that is in itself depressing, but, but probably not quite so harmful as the policies would be. It's just it's it's it happens at every turn with this administration. The the way this is going down is uh, the current director of the Federal Housing Finance Agency made a shift, lowering the fees being charged to borrowers with low down payments and low credit scores and compensating that loss by raising fees on better credit worthy borrowers who are putting down larger down payments. And there's been a pushback. They delayed it till August under pressure from um, Fannie Mae and all those other housing lender. Um, companies, but now it's in place and they're under pressure to reverse it because it's unfair. But it's it continues a policy of 
the people who take out college loans who fall behind on payments. Let's reward them by getting rid of the payments. Make the, the truckers who didn't go to college and had the foresight to recognize I don't need that degree and I don't want to be saddled with that burden. Make him pay uh, for that. Like, let's look at the, the rent abatement uh, procedures that were kept in place long after they were necessary following the covid pandemic, which he was told the Supreme Court was not going to allow. And he did it anyway. He extended it at every turn. It, it's it, Neil, you could even take it down to, you know, changing the messaging on obesity to be, oh, it's not your fault. And it's absolutely healthy and beautiful to be 200, 300 pounds overweight. All of it is looking for an excuse for people's life choices that no, are not serving them well, but that used to be somebody's private business. Now it's up to people who have made better life choices to bail you out of those problems. You know, we're moving away from the, the age of cost benefit analysis when you assess the policy with the question, will this be uh, net beneficial uh, to society? And, and that, of course, included uh, to the economy. We, we kind of left that behind. And we now can see policies that are designed on the basis of, are we going to hit key voters in our co coalition, uh, particularly in the key states that are going to be in play. And th this this is the basis on which policy now gets designed. And it's extremely harmful in two ways. First of all, we end up with economically suboptimal policies. It's obviously a totally terrible idea to start penalizing people uh, who have good credit scores and rewarding those who have bad or penalizing uh, those who haven't got student debt in order to pay off uh, the the loans of of uh, of the beneficiaries uh, with taxpayers' money. These are suboptimal policies. Economically, they will have costs to our economic efficiency. They will create distortions that will ultimately reduce our our rate of growth. But but the second thing, which I think in some ways is worse, is that these are so politically divisive. The, these are policies that are designed to ensure that the playing field isn't level. Uh, and and in, in particular, to make sure uh, that the particular groups are on on the wrong side of the trade nine times out of ten, and you're you're kind of signalling to middle America, to middle class America, you're kind of signalling uh, that that discrimination is okay as long as it's against you, and that I mm -hmm. think is is deeply toxic politically, quite apart from the economic costs. There's actually now a disincentive to keep your credit score high if you're about to apply for a mortgage. You have an incentive to go blow off your Bloomingdale's bill or your car payment or whatever it is that previously we understood we needed to pay all of our bills on time, especially for applying for a mortgage, so we could get a nice credit card score, uh, credit rate, rating, I should say, and get a very, you know, cor a correspondingly low mortgage rate. Exactly the opposite now. He's absolutely incentivizing the wrong things. And for the wrong reasons. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that really drives me nuts. It's like the left will give him a pass because they'll say, oh, he was trying to help minorities. Why? By encouraging bad, irresponsible behavior by the masses who were previously behaving well? But Megan, this reminds me of some of what goes on in education, uh, where we're told that actually standardized tests are a bad thing uh, and we should, we should get rid of those uh, because uh, so it's alleged. Uh, they're disadvantageous uh, to minorities. Now, 
in reality, the creation of standardized tests was a way of, of boosting social mobility by ensuring that we made decisions like university admissions on the basis of some kind of objective measure of, of academic performance and potential. And it's highly unlikely, in my view, that getting rid of those tests will benefit anybody in the bottom quintile of the income distribution. I, I should think that that's almost certainly not going it's to not. be the consequence. Just to, just to add to that, Neil, we just had on Heather McDonald, who I know you know, she's brilliant. She just wrote a new book. And she had taken a hard look at all of this, the, the getting rid of the SAT scores and the ACT scores at various colleges. And so far, the, the colleges are complaining it's done nothing to increase their diversity. Nothing. Well, in fact, it will probably have the perverse opposite consequence, because if you get rid of that measure, uh, what are you going to end up relying on? And I, I've, I've witnessed experiments of this sort at, at different universities. There was a time when Oxford got rid of its entrance examination, thinking that it would somehow benefit lower class students. But it didn't at all, because when you get rid of the exam or you get rid of the standardized test, you end up relying more on things like essays that can be absolutely fine-tuned uh, by the the kids of wealthy families who can afford tuition and all the kind of things that go into college applications. So I'm a, I'm a meritocrat, Megan. I, I, I passionately believe uh, in, in meritocracy, uh, in admission and, and promotion on the basis of, of academic achievement, hard work plus skill plus talent that's that's how we should organize our society it doesn't produce a level playing field outcome but it should start with a level playing field uh, uh, to begin with so we have equality of opportunity and what i'm really depressed by is to see the left dismantling the meritocratic system and basically killing off the paths of social mobility that were carefully built up in the 20th century so that people with talent and, and hard work uh, who happened to be born into uh, the bottom half or the bottom fifth of the income distribution had a shot. And it's one of these things that's quite irritating if you yeah. are a conservative. You kind of always get presented as if somehow you are on the side of the rich and privileged against the, the poor and underprivileged. And the opposite is true. Let's talk about relationships. There is a common misconception that they have to be easy to be right. But sometimes the best ones require both people to put in some time to make them great. Therapy can be a great place to work through the challenges you face in all of your relationships, whether it's with friends, work, your significant other, or anyone. Learning positive coping skills, understanding how to set boundaries, and empowering yourself to be the best version of yourself, these are just a few of the broader benefits that therapy can provide. If you're considering therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's a convenient and flexible online platform designed to fit seamlessly into your schedule. With a simple questionnaire, you can be matched with a licensed therapist. And the best part, you can switch therapists anytime at no additional charge. That's important. Not all therapists are created equal. Become your own soulmate, whether you're looking for one or not. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Megan today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Megan. Let's just spend some time on your background, Neil, because I didn't know a lot of, uh, of this about you as my team was getting me prepared on the Neil Ferguson life story. Uh, I mentioned you're originally from the UK. So tell us about your upbringing. You had two very smart parents from the sound of it. Well, I grew up in Glasgow. Uh, in Scotland. I was very fortunate uh, in my uh, parents 
my father uh, and mother were the first in their families to go to university. Hence my earlier remarks uh, before the break about the importance of social mobility through education. Uh, my father uh, managed to become a doctor. Uh, he was a dedicated internist uh, all uh, through my childhood, uh, tremendously devoted to his work, uh, regarded work as a vocation. And my mother uh, was a physicist, a physics teacher. Uh, uh, my father died a few years ago, but my mom uh, is uh, still alive and living in England. And uh, I owe them everything. Without them and, and, of course, without my grandparents who produced them, I would be uh, nothing and would have, uh, have, have achieved nothing. They gave me uh, their genes, but they also gave me something else, which is, is the kind of upbringing uh, that I try to give my own children in which uh, they instilled me with sense of, of responsibility, of, of good fortune, uh, and a sense that one should never waste that good fortune. Uh, and I, I, try not, I try not to waste the good luck I've been given. Now, one thing they did not give you was a belief in any particular religion. And uh, I, what was your mom's line about how the universe was created or what we're doing here? It was some great line. Well, my mother um, and father both left the Church of Scotland uh, really on, I think, the, the principle that that Glasgow and, and much of Scotland was afflicted by sectarian division. Uh, this was the great curse of the part of the world where I grew up, Catholics and Protestants, uh, not only uh, hating and, and despising one another, but in, in Northern Ireland, of course, engaging in violence. And I think that was a big part of the reason that my, my parents stopped going to church. Uh, but my mother was also a kind of committed atheist. She loved to tell me and my sister that Life was a cosmic accident, and uh, and and that, that in that sense uh, one shouldn't expect the world or indeed the cosmos to revo revolve around around us. It was all a kind of uh, a kind of combination of of Newtonian uh, physics and and Darwinian e evolution, and that that was how I was raised. We didn't go to church, uh, although there were ch uh, there was a, a chapel, there was a religious uh, element to my education. I always felt somewhat detached from it. And uh, and in, as I said, Glasgow in a sectarian society like Glasgow's, there was a Catholic football team, Celtic, and a Protestant football team, Rangers. But I found the atheist football team, Partick Thistle. And the joke always was that, you know, if you do believe in God when you start supporting Partick Thistle, you'll soon stop. So that was my background. <laughs> you know, it's funny. It's all coming together for me. Uh, in New York, there's this thing called the Kelly Gang. And it's a bunch of media personalities and some other well-known Kellys. And uh, we raise money for charity. And we get together on St. Patrick's Day every year. And I remember saying um, to Ray Kelly, who was the police commissioner for a while, and uh, Greg Kelly's dad, I said, what's what's the story? Like, what? how does one get into the Kelly Gang? What am I doing here? And he said, well, there are three rules. He said, you got to have some juice. You... Um, <laughs> You gotta, uh, oh God, what was the second thing? Gotta have some juice. Gotta have something that said there was second thing. It'll come to me. And he said, and the third thing is you can't have that second E <laughs> <laughs> to your point about, because uh, those of us without the second E are, are Catholics. Yeah. You know, that kind of thing mattered a lot where I, I grew up and I, I still always marvel at the, uh, the great self-confidence of the, of the Irish Americans and, and, uh, vaguely grind my teeth at the thought of the, the way that back in the day they they tend to sympathize with the with the provisional IRA who were conducting terrorist operations in Northern Ireland and the UK. So 
that background kind of creates a certain wariness about religion because it gets it got so associated with uh, politics and indeed uh, at times with with violence and certainly was associated with prejudice. So I, I completely get why my parents took that approach. I found that when I left Scotland and uh, studied history, I became less and less convinced uh, of atheism as a way of life or indeed as a way to organize a society. And so uh, these days you'll find me a regular uh, attender at church. Uh, oh, so and, I love and this. Somebody I who, love this. Who you, has, you, you believe uh, in has, observance, has... if not if not true belief. So tell, tell us how, like, why? What are you doing with your children and how did you get to that place? Well, I think, and I felt I have five children. I felt this uh, in in uh, for all of them that one should at least educate uh, children about uh, religion. And as we are uh, a society that came out of uh, of Christianity, it's extremely important that you understand what that is. Uh, so there's there's that part, but there's also a sense in which a life without spirituality. Uh, is at some level uh, a life with a, a missing piece. I think that G.K. Chesterton uh, said something very true. He didn't quite say this, but that's usually how it's quoted. Uh, you know, the trouble with with atheism is is not that men believe in nothing; it's that they'll believe in anything. Uh, and so, if you if you kind of opt out of religion, it's quite possible that something else might be crazy conspiracy theories will fill it, or it might be uh, a secular religion like Marxism. So I've kind of come to the view that even if I don't have a strong spiritual impulse and struggle a bit to uh, to have belief in in God, I do think it's important to have a part of your life uh, that is devoted to spiritual reflection. I think going to church is good for you. It is good to think about uh, Christ's teaching. It's good to be part of that tradition. Apart from anything else, Christ has some very radical things to teach us about how to be good, how to treat our fellow uh, human beings. And I think that's something I want my children to know. We're definitely not naturally good. I mean, I don't think that we uh, have evolved to be uh, ethical. I think that's something that society has to drum into people somehow. And over time, I've, I've come to feel that this is a really important part of our lives. Now, this, of course, raises the the thorny question of how does Ayan feel? Because, of course, my yeah, wife is she a was former raised in the Muslim. Muslim Brotherhood. She she went through a period in her life when she was not only a devout Muslim but had been radicalized by the Muslim Brotherhood. She too uh, became an atheist, but by a very different route from me. Mm. Um, and we find ourselves uh, a most unusual. Uh, family, both these uh, uh, atheists have arrived at a consensus that we should go to church on Sunday. And uh, and we took a while to find the right church. Uh, Northern California has strangely politicized kind of uh, uh, a religion. I, I, I got very turned off by church services, which included a mandatory anti-Trump sermon. But there's a wonderfully uh, traditional Anglican church that we now attend which uh, uses uh, the the traditional uh, order of service and uh, avoids altogether politics uh, in the sermons, and this is uh, this is a source of of considerable satisfaction to me. And I think it's good for us as a family, good for the kids, and they can make up their own minds what, as they grow up what they they want to do. But my eldest son was recently married uh, in London. I saw last, some pictures uh, of that. Yeah, and I sent me a couple of those pictures. You had your traditional yeah. Scottish dress on 
I had my kilt on, as did nearly all the Ferguson boys. Uh, the bridegroom himself opted not to because he was marrying an English uh, girl, and I think felt it might be just a little bit too much of uh, of of a good thing if we all were decked out like Sean Connery in our in our kilts. But this was a, a religious uh, service uh, in an Anglican chapel, and a beautiful thing. The great thing about Anglicanism is the aesthetics are so good. I mean, you may not have very uplifting uh, spiritual impulses, but you can enjoy the music if nothing else. And that, that mm-hmm. that's itself meaningful. I think that's so great because you're a historian and, uh, and just from reading up on your what you've said about this in the past, you recognize that, you know, atheist societies don't tend to end very well. It's not a very good blueprint no. for a society in which you'd want to live. And so there was as much as anything, right. an intellectual decision to try to raise children who were not atheists, who had a commitment to a faith unlike yourself. Correct. And and it, it's not just that they end badly, they, ba- they start badly. I mean, the great experiments with uh, non-Christian uh, systems, the French Revolution did it, uh, so did the, the Russian Revolution, uh, so uh, in its way did the Chinese Revolution. I mean, these very quickly became terribly bloodthirsty regimes. Uh, I remember reading Richard Pipes' great history of the Bolshevik Revolution when I was an undergraduate and being appalled at the descriptions of the violence the Bolsheviks directed against the clergy, uh, against uh, all religious institutions, the destruction that occurred at that time of uh, of churches in in Russia, so uh, it came it came to me uh, that atheism wasn't just this kind of individual choice. Uh, not to believe, but it could in fact be the operating system uh, for uh, totalitarian regimes. And what they do, and this is the really interesting point, is they they try to create their own religion, uh, an ideology, a political ideology, which then replaces Christianity. And, and I'll add one final point, Megan. It's worth remembering that the people who resisted Nazism most tenaciously in Germany were nearly all religious. And and that has to tell us something very important about the power of religion as a kind of vaccine and inoculation against evil. And I think it is that. Mm. The um, the union between you and Ayan, which led to two of those five children you have, uh, was a second marriage. And as I understand it, you met at the time 100. You were both being inducted as two of the world's most influential people. There was a write-up about it at the time in the Daily Mail. And I love this quote. A friend of Ms. Hersi Ali said, I think that's where they met for the first time. In all the years I've known Ayan, she's never had a boyfriend. She's gorgeous. But with a fatwa, it's tricky to find guys. <laughs> Ayan, we laugh. But Ayan remains with a fatwa on her, a fatwa on her from the Muslim Brotherhood, from which she ultimately fled. She was now you know, famously or infamously working on this film that got its director, Theo Van Gogh, killed, shot um, because it was critical of Islam. And uh, on his chest was pinned a fatwa on Ayan, a, a threat on Ayan's life, a commitment to kill Ayan. And she has had to live with that every day thereafter. I mean, she's the, the bravest, most courageous woman I know. And you, you know, I can see the woman's point who gave this quote to, <laughs> to Daily Mail. You walk into this just like this powerhouse of a woman. I mean, I can imagine you're bowled over by meeting the Ayan Hirsi Ali. But then it's a little complicated. <laughs> well, honey, I've got something to tell you. Well, uh, 
remember, don't believe everything you read in the Daily Mail. Uh, actually, we 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 were on a date when we went to the Time 100 dinner. We we'd met oh. uh, already at a, a much more obscure, but I think uh, cooler event, which was the. Uh, the the emergency conference of the Mont Pelerin Society at the time of the financial crisis. The Mont oh, Pelerin right. Society, famously a gathering of uh, of mostly Chicago free market economists, and we've both <laughs> been invited to attend. And v- indeed, Hot. I gave a speech about why the financial crisis shouldn't be blamed on free markets, and uh, and that was when <laughs> when I was introduced to Aon. I I knew very of course, sexy. Well, it, it's certainly nerdy, isn't it? Um, and and uh, and she wasn't wearing that blue dress either. Uh, but but I knew, of course, who she was uh, when a lovely Australian man named Greg Lindsay uh, introduced us. He was the unlikely Cupid. By the way, if you've ever read War and Peace, the moment when Pierre sees Natasha, everything stops. Uh, that's what the French called a coup de foudre. It happened to me then. So I knew very much uh, that she was under threat. And and indeed, these threats don't have expiry dates. Uh, yeah. uh, there's no statute of limitations. And we have to accept that there are people uh, out there uh, who uh, would regard killing my wife as she's an apostate and somebody who's been highly critical of, of Islam, and particularly political Islam. They would regard it as a, a, a holy act. I mean, we have to live with that. Uh, the fact that Salman Rushdie was attacked last year uh, yeah. when he clearly felt it kind of was over came as a huge blow, I think, to Ayan, uh, who was deeply upset by the attack on Salman, whom, whom we know. I suppose I think about it this way. First of all, terrorism is designed to inspire fear and is its purpose. Um, and I grew up uh, in a culture uh, which is highly resistant uh, to accepting fear. Uh, my grandfathers fought in the world wars. The Scots pride themselves in their fearlessness. And I uh, have never been afraid of these people because I despise them. I have utter contempt for them and I don't fear them. Uh, and indeed, I'd already made the choice to move to the United States just after 9 11. Uh, because actually 9-11 prevented me from giving a lecture at New York University. Uh, It was supposed to happen the next day. I never flew. And it was shortly after that that I decided to leave Oxford, take a job at New York University. So before I met Ayan, I think I'd already made made it clear uh, that I was going to march towards rather than away from the gunfire. My grandfathers had to fight uh, at great cost uh, to themselves. Uh, They didn't uh, pay the ultimate price, but my grandfather was very badly uh, injured in World War One, and, and my mother's father suffered uh, significant health uh, damage in World War Two fighting the Japanese. I haven't been asked to do anything as difficult as that. My war is a small war. Uh, it takes place uh, uh, here, and I just have to keep my wife safe uh, uh, and happy uh, and make sure that she lives a long life, because that will be the ultimate victory over all those cowards who threatened her over the years. That's my war, and it's a much easier one than my granddad had to fight. Oh, my goodness. And But like those wars, well worth the fight. You know, I that's so. probably on some level what attracted her to you, you know, that, that Scottish background, that fighter background, and the feeling that this person will help protect me. I'm sure as strong and brave as Ion is, there's got to be a fear factor, for even for her, knowing that these very effective killers are out there thinking about her, wanting to target her. Look, I think my wife's extremely uh, brave and good at putting up 
a brave uh, face, but I would not be uh, doing justice to this interview if I made it sound as if it was all okay, because the mental uh, stress of being threatened uh, has taken a heavy toll, uh, a very heavy toll on my wife's well-being, happiness. Uh, it's been a, a, a struggle, much harder than I had foreseen. I, I thought the challenge would be just making sure that the bad guys uh, couldn't get close. But the real challenge when you're facing terrorist threats like this is actually making sure that that your uh, your spouse's mental health uh, is okay. Because that that's mm. really what the terrorists are trying to do. It's not just about threats and objective security. The thing that really turns out to matter in life is is the subjective security, and that that terrorism is designed to erode. And it's it's been a much bigger challenge than I I foresaw. One one mm. that we are overcoming, but not one that we should understate. When she came out with her book, uh, she came to Fox News, and I gave I interviewed her. I think I was her first interview on that. And it was shocking to me, the amount of security back then, this would have been 2013, 2014, I can't remember the year, that she had to travel with. I mean, it, and even, you know, I've visited her privately since then, and it's still like, she still has to live like this because of these lunatics who are so delusioned by, quote, religion and what they think it requires of them because she's been critical of Islam. I mean, a, a religion, in, you know, in whose name she had to undergo mutilation of her genitals. I mean, it, it can cause some bitterness. It can cause you to abandon the religion, not to mention all the other things that she's written about and talked about so many times that have happened to her. It's just deeply wrong. And most of us would be in a puddle crying for, for most of our lives or retreating into very private lives where people couldn't find us. The mere fact that she's chosen to live a public life that you live a public life, you, the two of you, you've had kids. That's another factor. You got to layer into the worries does speak to, you know, both of your courage, Scottish, whatever the background. Well, it's still, I mean, it still beats being in Eastern Ukraine. I mean, it still beats what so many people around the world have to contend with. And uh, from that point of view, I, I, I have no, I have no complaints. And, and, as long as my wife is uh, healthy and uh, and and safe and and happy, and the same applies to our kids, then then I'm winning. I'm winning the war. Uh, oh. But I think the the important thing uh, that that's worth sharing is just the kind of uh, damage that that is done, which is generally speaking not seen. I think people who who aren't directly affected by this kind of threat underestimate the psychological consequences of it because they kind of assume that oh you get used to security and you get used to uh you know coming in through the, the back way rather than the front way when you give a speech you get used to all of that and i think you do get used to all of that in fact to, to a certain degree it becomes slightly second nature but but you don't get used to the psychological uh effects of the threat and that's the thing that i've come to learn and it's it's made me much more appreciative Megan of of mental health about which I thought very little. Again, not the not so sunny side of of a Scottish upbringing is the mentality that you you never admit to weakness, you never admit to depression, you never admit to any mental health problem, and if there's a problem, you kind of work your way out of it. And I think that attitude isn't really the right one. I've become much more aware of 
of, of mental ill health as a problem throughout our nation and indeed throughout the world. And I'm mm -hmm. I'm much more understanding than than I used to be when as a young man I dismissed all that kind of thing as, you know, just a sign of weakness. I'm 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 a I'm a wiser person thanks to Aeon. Hmm. The um I'll tell you one funny story. So you talk about this sort of that, those Scottish roots and my husband's both Dutch and Scottish, Scottish on his mother's side. And um they went back to Scotland in the not too distant past, maybe five, six years ago with the family and they found their clan and they found their motto, their the family motto. And it translated, it was be fearless, but cautious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think we didn't get the but cautious part at the Fer in the Ferguson clan. Uh, but yeah, that sort of uh, spirit does still animate me. It's been 40 years since I've lived in Scotland. I left when I was 17 to go to college, but it's still kind of there uh, as yeah. a as an operating system. And when I when I read Scottish literature, I spent the pandemic reading all the novels of Walter Scott. I realized that that's really still uh, that's still home, and that culture is still uh, what I I grew out of. And the Scottish Enlightenment, which after all produced uh, some of the greatest ideas human beings have ever had. Think of Adam Smith's contribution, The Wealth of Nations, The Theory of Moral Sentiments. That's the kind of intellectual legacy that I think of myself as being uh, 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 responsible for. And if those ideas are not carried on to the next generation, then we lose something incredibly precious that came from my little cold, rainy country in, in, uh, in the north of Europe. So, no, so we have you with this background of fight say what you mean, stand up for your principles. We have Ayan, who found a way to say exactly what she felt, notwithstanding the enormous threat to her personal safety in doing so, on the most controversial issues you could ever speak of. And she was doing it at a time when, you know, this is post 9-11, when, you know, that was a very fraught conversation to be having. Um, and you two wind up, who would have predicted in academia? which you probably didn't realize at the time would be the least tolerant place for any of those values. And it's only gotten worse over the past 10, 12 years. And you're both now at the Hoover Institution, which is this little oasis within the university system, including at Stanford, which is, you know, we do a story every other day. I'm sure you saw what happened with the judge who went out there, Judge Duncan. Yeah. But right. the Hoover Institution is different. However, you're still on, you're in academia and you're on a college campus. And so how, how's that going? <laughs> Well, I, I think if you told me back in the 1980s when I was an undergraduate at Oxford that by the 2020s there would be less free speech uh, in American universities than uh, in American saloon bars, I would have been pretty incredulous. Because in the early 80s when I was at Oxford, there was almost no restriction on what we could say. And there was incredible intellectual diversity in the university. You could go from talking to a, a Marxist professor in the morning to listening to an ultra conservative uh, in the afternoon. Andrew Sullivan and I were uh, undergraduates together. We were quite outrageous and highly offensive and said a whole range of things that would get you canceled today in a heartbeat. Mm -hmm. I, I never foresaw that there would be an atmosphere in universities where students would denounce one another or denounce their professors for something that was said in class. I I never imagined a, a, a university world in which associate deans for diversity, equity, and inclusion would decide what could be said uh, on university premises. Uh, I find all this completely surreal. In fact, I think it's probably the biggest surprise of my life because back in the 80s, 
I guess working with historians like the late great Norman Stone, I learned that denouncing, informing, cancellation, all that kind of stuff went on in totalitarian regimes like Stalin's Soviet Union or Mao's China. And, and that kind of behavior happened because there was a dictator in charge. And that's how people tend to behave in such a regime. The thing that's amazing is to see people behaving that way with no dictator in sight. In fact, they're behaving that way in a completely free society. Uh, and that's shocking to me because I, I can't imagine anything, frankly, more contemptible than writing a letter denouncing somebody to and sending it to a higher authority, asking for them to be disciplined. But that stuff goes on all the time in American universities. Stanford is not by any means unusual. The same kind of things are going on at all the major universities and the minor ones, too. So this is a big surprise to me. I think it's pretty appalling. Uh, in fact, I think it's highly dangerous that there is this uh, assault on academic freedom and on free speech because our universities, like it or not, produce the uh, not only the elites, but a really large proportion uh, of the, the people who run America. And if they leave after four years uh, at, at college with a, a, at least a habit of self-censorship and at worst, a kind of indoctrination uh, in what we call woke ideology. That's terrible for America and terrible for the world. So uh, the situation is very bad. Uh, I think there are things we are, are doing that are gradually improving it, creating new institutions uh, like the University of Austin, making sure that the few existing institutions that are healthy, like the Hoover Institution, stay healthy, making sure that we organize so that cancel cultures sort of doesn't succeed. I, I was involved in creating the Academic Freedom Alliance to fight back when individuals are, are targeted. There's a lot we're doing. Uh, and so in this part of my life, as in other parts, I'm trying to fight the good fight because I think it's hugely important. Mm hmm. They I think it was is it Harvard that just came out with a new group uh, saying that they're going to fight for academic freedom, uh, including, you know, professors ability to say what is factual and not get piled on or canceled because of it. We'll see whether that's a real commitment or not. You know, it used to be that Princeton was the place you'd go if you really wanted that. But they've surrendered to the woke. University of Chicago was another place. They've surrendered to the woke one by one. They dropped like dominoes. I was very glad to see uh, that my old friends, uh, Steve Pinker and Larry Summers and others were creating that new organization at, at Harvard. It's long overdue because uh, actually Harvard's track record on disciplining uh, faculty and other university members for speech, quote unquote, offenses is pretty bad. Uh, so this is good. I mean, these these are good signs, Megan, that we're we're getting organized and we're trying to contest uh, and fight back against these really deplorable trends. But I, I, I really want to stress, there's a long way to go. Uh, and uh, the, the kind of events that you're, you're covering and others are covering and organizations like FIRE are monitoring, these events are happening a lot. I sometimes I'm told, oh, there's a pendulum that will swing back to the center. And I, I don't see that pendulum. I, I actually think that the pendulum, if there is one, has been swinging to the left with every decade since I was an undergraduate, and there's no sign of it moving the other direction. Quite quite the opposite. The tendency is for people to hire ever more ideologically, to discriminate ever more uh, explicitly on, on political grounds. So we've a lot of work to do to create the kind of university that I would want uh, our young sons to go to. Thomas is 11, Campbell is five, and we've got uh, just about time to make sure 
that there's there's a, a higher education worth their doing by the time they get to be 18. So explain University of Austin to me. I'm I'm confused by it. I love everybody associated with it, but I don't understand what it is or how it works. It's not an online university. So what is it? Well, we are building uh, a university that will be located in Austin, Texas, uh, that will be founded on the principles of academic freedom, intellectual uh, freedom, as well as meritocracy. And we will institutionalize those principles so that they are constitutionally guaranteed by a university constitution. Creating a university is not easy. It's not like uh, doing an AI startup, which, which seems to take about three weeks these days. You have to go through an accreditation process, which uh, is quite laborious and time consuming. But we will admit our first uh, class uh, all going well uh, in the fall of 2024. That's next year. We've moved it by academic standards at lightning speed, uh, we've raised $150 million, uh, which is chump change by Harvard standards, but uh, but we're a startup. We don't need to have Harvard's budget. Uh, we just need to build uh, and, and then scale this institution. And it's extremely exciting, and I think very American, to be creating a new institution. Once upon a time, the University of Chicago was us. Once upon a time, Stanford was us. You know, you you have to remember that by Oxford standards, both Chicago and Stanford are quite young institutions, not even close to two hundred years old. Uh, and so we we believe that that, that America needs a new university, and uh, and it's ultimately going to be good for the existing universities if there's one that really models academic freedom and really models uh, a truly meritocratic uh, culture uh, in which uh, in which we only discriminate in favor of talent. That's what we're going to do, uh, and I think if we get it right, we're going to attract the most exciting students in the country. Because I can assure you, students at the established universities are frustrated, downright depressed in many cases, because academic life, student life is just no fun. It's no fun when the woke police are, are poised to, to jump on you if you use the wrong word in the wrong context. And building a university which will be truly intellectually free uh, will be will be fun, and I think we will very quickly be a magnet for talent. And the minute we do that, the other universities are going to realize we have to address our own illiberal, no fun culture. And ultimately, I hope 20 years from now, I probably only have 20 years left, judging by typical life expectancy for Scotsmen. I hope 20 years from now, we've really made a difference. And I, I believe we will. Well, the other thing is, I think there are a lot of employers who are thirsty for this kind of a product to recruit uh, graduates from a school like that who haven't been indoctrinated. Anyone who would choose the University of Austin will have a certain set of ideals and principles and ways of approaching thinking and problem solving that I, for one, as an employer, would find very attractive. And I know there are many just like me. So that's the other thing. Once people see that the graduates of this university get great jobs, you know, it may not be with Bud Light, <laughs> but they get great jobs with great corporations that will employ and be loyal to them. That'll change, you know, the equation there, too. You are so right, Megan. And we absolutely intend to make sure that the message uh, gets out uh, and also that we make sure that as we devise our undergraduate and master's programs, we devise them so that 
our people will be like the navy seals of the mind and that's an image mm. i i really like we 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 see still elitism in our military that the desire to be the very very best is something that motivates the the seals and the other special forces uh folks but where is that in academia? Uh, well, we want to build it. Uh, and if if you can produce the Navy SEALs or the Green Berets of the brain, then you bet the, the top employers are going to want to, to hire our people. And this is something that our wonderful president, Pano Canelos, keeps emphasizing. Uh, we've got to make sure that we are designing programs that are fundamentally different in, in their aspiration. We want to produce leaders. We want to to produce people who dare to think and learn to lead. That's my kind of preferred motto for the University of Austin. And, and so it's actually very invigorating to be involved in, in doing this because we can learn from history. We can learn from what's gone wrong at the established universities and try and come up with something that's fundamentally different. There won't be departments. There won't be a system of tenured faculty who become dominant. There won't be an enormous bureaucracy of, of officers policing uh, what gets said and done. All of that will be will be got rid of. It won't exist in those forms at the University of Austin. I love it. Two plus two will remain four. <laughs> you won't have DEI policing your math, uh, nope. volleyball, and what else? whatever else they can dream up. Uh, it's right. exciting. So the first incoming full class begins in 2024, fall of 24? Right. That's wow. that's right, and uh, and we will I I hope scale rapidly. You mentioned the online piece. I think that's important. Um, it, it's not enough in the twenty first century to build uh, a liberal arts college uh, in in Texas and hope to change the world. I think what we'll do once we've attracted uh, the 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 elite faculty that I think we are going to attract is we'll make sure that content. Uh, is available not just to the fortunate few who get admitted, but more widely. Uh, and so I'm, I'm hoping that we can be a new kind of educational institution, one that that cherishes and preserves the values of the great universities of the past, because I think the great the greatest teaching experiences do still happen in classrooms, uh, in relatively small groups. We've got to preserve all that because it's really powerful. But we've also got to make available content to people around the world who don't have the good fortune to be able to spend four years uh, in in a U.S. university. I I yeah. really feel passionately about my egalitarian mission. My egalitarian mission is to get history, which is my subject, out to the greatest number of people possible, and that includes people living in poverty, whether it's in sub-Saharan Africa and Somalia, where my wife was born, or in the deprived parts of Scotland. I, I want that kind of historical knowledge to be accessible to everybody because history can help you live your life better. It will help you learn from the mistakes of that vast population who died, who've moved on. The majority of human beings are dead. The majority uh, have passed on. We have to learn from their experience if we're to make a better job uh, of the 21st century than we're currently making. So we mentioned Douglas Murray. Um, I don't think my husband Doug would mind. He, he's going to be interviewing him on his podcast, which is called Dedicated with Doug Brun. It's it's he's an author and he interviews other authors about their writing process, their books, and so on. And Doug has been reading. Uh, my Doug has been reading Douglas Murray's War on the West, and he's of course got so many similar thoughts to your own on how the absurdity of writing off every every bit of history as you know, terrible and not worthy of consideration because of colonialism, because of white men, because of all the things. And I want to ask you about a similar subject right after this break, colonialism and King Charles's commitment 
to atoning for it. That's kind of so, that's that kind of sounds like where he's going. I'll I'll tell you what he said and get your thoughts on it right after this. More with Neil Ferguson in two minutes. So Neil King Charles uh, is about to go through his coronation across the pond, and in his first big speech, let's talk about relationships. There is a common misconception that they have to be easy to be right, but sometimes the best ones require both people to put in some time to make them great. Therapy can be a great place to work through the challenges you face in all of your relationships, whether it's with friends, work, your significant other, or anyone. Learning positive coping skills, understanding how to set boundaries, and empowering yourself to be the best version of yourself, these are just a few of the broader benefits that therapy can provide. If you're considering therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's a convenient and flexible online platform designed to fit seamlessly into your schedule. With a simple questionnaire, you can be matched with a licensed therapist. And the best part, you can switch therapists anytime at no additional charge. That's important. Not all therapists are created equal. Become your own soulmate, whether you're looking for one or not. Visit betterhelp.com slash Megan today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash Megan. Um, in front of a foreign leader, which was in November, he signaled that the, his monarchy will tackle the legacy of colonialism. He's made quite a few comments about this, his sadness about the UK's role in the slave trade. He cannot describe the depths of his personal sorrow at the suffering of so many as he continues to deepen his own understanding of slavery's enduring impact. But he seems to be focused on some sort of atonement for the legacy of colonialism. Good idea to make this any sort of a centerpiece of his reign? Well, Charles, uh, King Charles, as I must learn to call him, has uh, had a bad press on many occasions in, in the past. And, and I often think has been uh, misunderstood and, and misrepresented. And, and it's easy, I think, uh, to infer from this kind of thing, oh, no, here comes the woke monarch. Uh, and I don't think that's fair. First of all, I think Britain has been dealing with the complexities of its imperial past for a long time. It's not as if uh, his mother uh, disregarded this. In fact, one of the most striking achievements of uh, Queen Elizabeth II's reign was the way that the legacy of empire metamorphosed into the Commonwealth, uh, an entirely different kind of organization in which the different members, including former colonies, were were equals. So this is not something that he's starting from scratch. The key in this debate, Megan, is for us not to go down the road of, on one side, there being people who say every single thing about empire, and particularly the British Empire, was evil. And on the other side, people saying every single thing about it was great. 20 years ago, I wrote a book called Empire, How Britain Made the Modern World. And in that book, I pointed out that, that Britain was responsible both for some dreadful evils, uh, the transatlantic slave trade to which Britain made a major contribution, but also the United States of America. I mean, let's face it, the United States of America starts out as a bunch of rebellious colonies. Uh, and most of the institutions that, that get put together to produce the United States have a pretty 
a visible British imprint, uh, not to mention the language we're speaking. So you can't say it's all bad and you can't say it's all good. You've got to recognize that as with all historical phenomena, the British Empire was a tremendously complex thing. It was responsible for great misdeeds, but then so were all empires. I mean, give me an empire that didn't have some version uh, of slavery. I'd be very interested to hear about it. Uh, and one can't ignore the fact that unlike many empires, and I mentioned one earlier, uh, Hitler's empire, the British empire did a lot of good. I mean, I can't think of any good that Germany's empire did in the 1940s, but, but over the 200 plus years of its existence, uh, there were some undoubted uh, benefits to British empire. You can't say that in certain circles these days, because you have to maintain the fiction that it was all bad. But I'm a historian, and I'm here to tell you that history isn't all bad and it isn't all good. Sorry, it's complicated. It's complicated. You know, I, for one, was a little concerned when they fired that lady Susan Hussey so quickly when she had that exchange with um, a black activist who was there visiting. And she the lady kept asking her, where are you actually from? But the woman was in African garb and she had an African name and she was Lady Susan Hussey was con confused that she might not actually be from Great Britain. Anyway, they fired her pretty quickly. And I just wonder whether, you know, you don't think we're in for a woke monarch? Well, I think that kind of performative protest, uh, which always reminds me of footballers who dive in the penalty area clutching their face, uh, <laughs> right. is going to be uh, a pretty recurrent feature of of British and American life for years to come. There are people oh. who are on the lookout for reasons to be offended. And uh, it's it's hard to deal with those people, especially if you're a traditional institution with centuries of history. Uh, I think the challenge uh, for, for the monarchy is the same challenge it had when I was born, gulp nearly 60 years ago. And that is, how do you justify an institution based on the hereditary principle uh, in the age of, of democracy and, and in the age of, of, of technology. And the extraordinary thing about the British monarchy is how well that's gone so far. I mean, there was a time when you think back to, I don't know, late 18th century when the revolutions were happening, not only here, but also in France, where it didn't seem like monarchy had a great future ahead of it. But what I think uh, King Charles will have learned from his mother is that there are, in fact, great virtues to having a non-elected head of state who personifies tradition. And this is the same thing that I was saying to you earlier about religion. Uh, you know, at some level, the United States feels a lot more divided politically and in other ways than Britain today. Wokeism has made far greater inroads here than in the UK. And it's partly yeah. because there's so many parts of British life that are kind of off limits. They're not really supposed to be political. Uh, and so the church, the crown, these things, as my old friend Roger Scruton used to say, are other things that that we as conservatives should really want to conserve because they're the things that preserve part of our lives from the scourge of democratic politics. So as a historian and a conservative looking around at America, seeing wokeism take over, seeing the, the, the loss of biology and reality, math realities, seeing just this incredibly divisive anti-free speech rhetoric pop up in every one of our massive institutions, are we are we looking at the end of days here for this great republic? I, where, where do we go from here, if, based on what you've seen historically? Well, my last book, Doom, The Politics of Catastrophe, takes this question on. Uh, I love 
that that feature of American life that we're always predicting American decline uh, and we're always predicting either the next civil war or the overthrow of the constitution. I think it keeps us uh, on our toes to worry about that stuff. And I, I'd be kind of concerned if Americans didn't occasionally ask themselves, are we about to blow it? Now, I tend to regard most of the, the kind of exaggerated prophecies of doom as being a, a not worth the paper they're printed on. I'm, I mean, I, I, I got slightly exhausted by the the analogies that were constantly made between Donald Trump and Mussolini or even Hitler. And that just seems to me ludicrous. Uh, I think there are two things that are important. First of all, there's a populist tradition in American politics. Uh, and there's also a kind of nasty tradition in American politics. Dickens was appalled when he came to the United States by how brutally nasty uh, American politics was. And we mustn't forget that that's kind of part of the way this republic has tended to roll. Uh, and there's a very 19th century character to a lot of what we see today, including political machines, uh, which have got to be almost Tammany Hall in their efficiency. Uh, the second point I'd make is that we should worry about the durability of Republican institutions. There's a reason Rome turned into an empire. It's the thing that political history and political theory tells us we should worry about. But I don't think we are near the end of the Republic or much less the end of days. Americans have to remember that it was a lot worse in this country, for example, in the late 60s and early 70s. Much more division and a good deal more violence uh, than we see today. So let's keep calm, as the British poster says it, and carry on. American institutions are extraordinarily well designed and extraordinarily strong. And the challenges we face, like the People's Republic of China under the Chinese Communist Party, those challenges are not the biggest challenge. The biggest challenge we face is within. It's are we capable of sustaining those principles that have served us so well over two centuries? And as long as we don't throw those out the window in a paroxysm of wokeism, I think the United States will be just fine. As the Scottish might do, we must fight to preserve them. Neil, so great 100%. to talk to you. Please send my love to your beautiful wife. And thank you so much. Really enjoyed this. My pleasure, Megan. Great to see you. Before we go, I wanted to bring you the latest edition of the MK Mailbag. If you would like to email me, you can do so now. Megan, M-E-G-Y-N. That's really how you say it. Megan, M-E-G-Y-N at MeganKelly.com. Okay, go there now and you can sign up for our American News Minute if you so desire while you're there. That's my email to you that I send out on Fridays. Okay, some great ones this week uh, regarding the Kappa Kappa Gamma sorority, insisting that they admit this trans person who was like the six foot one man who's 200. 50 pounds. I can't, uh, whatever. It's a nightmare. Uh, Claudia in Ohio writes, I was a proud KKG alumna until last fall. Uh, I attended University of Utah in the eighties, was pledged chairman and president. I was also an advisor, blah, blah, blah. The national organization is fully responsible for this. And I hope that they pay dearly. I'm considering returning my key and resigning as an alumna. Um, another former KKK, uh, KKG -er writes in saying, this guy doesn't even have a high enough GPA to be a member. Why was he even able to rush with that pathetic score? He has a 1.9. Uh, Candace writes in, thanks so much for bringing up this case. If those young women choose to move forward with their suit and let their names be known, they are absolute heroes. I agree on uh, Dylan and Bud White, Bud Light, Bud White, Bud Light. Somebody writes in Sasha. Thanks for sticking up for real women with the XX chromosomes. My issue is not even Dylan, but the marketing woman in charge who said she wants to appeal to women. You pick a man dressed as a woman to do so. Real women should represent 
and be used to be used to appeal to women. Christy writes in, uh, Christy wrote this great email. I think is the one who forwarded us her long email to Anheuser-Busch. Yeah, it was. And Christy, I read the whole thing. You didn't think I was going to read it. I read every word. It was amazing. She said, I never, I've never written to a company or a person for any reason. Uh, I just never really thought it would do much good. After everything that's happened, I couldn't sit quietly by any longer. I sent an email to Anheuser-Busch today. I wanted to thank you for helping me to find my voice and speak up and speak out. It was a great letter. Good for you. And then lastly, uh, I love this one. Okay. Meg's going to tell me. I screen grabbed it. What, and uh, the name is, I think it's Michelle uh, who wrote this in, or was it Mike? Michael? Michael. Finally, about your swearing. Please do not stop. My life's journey has exposed me to a lot of profanity and a lot of people who use profanity. Like everything in life, the ability to use profanity effectively has not been distributed fairly. Over the years, you come to be able to distinguish between people who are simply nasty and those who possess a certain profane elegance. Miss Kelly, you have a gift. Don't change a thing. God bless you and your staff. Thank you so much for that, Michael. Yes, Michael Andrews, I appreciate that. And I will keep on swearing, sir. Have a great fucking weekend. <laughs> See you Monday, guys. Thanks for listening to The Megan Kelly Show. No BS, no agenda, and no fear. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts.